0: Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Sarah Wilson. And here's a bit about Sarah. Sarah Wilson is a former journalist and TV presenter, author and activist. She wrote the New York Times bestsellers, I Quit Sugar. And First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which Mark Manson described as the best book on living with anxiety that I've ever read. She's the author of another 11 cookbooks that sell in 52 countries. And right there, I want to just talk to you about I Quit Sugar because of my famous no packaging vegan stews. But previously, she was editor of Cosmopolitan Australia host of MasterChef Australia, and founder of the largest wellness website in Australia, iquitsugar.com. In May 2018, she closed the business and gave all the money to charity. She now builds and enables charity projects that engage humans with each other and campaigns on mental health and and climate issues. She ranks as one of the top 200 most influential authors in the world and has a combined digital audience of 2.5 million. There's already many episodes that we could record just so far. I'm just going to read a little bit more. Sarah lives minimally rides a hand-built bike, and is known for traveling the world for eight years with one bag. Her latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, is a soul's journey through the complexities of climate change, coronavirus, racial inequalities, and our disconnection from what matters. Back to life. There's so much to go on here. (laughs) Can we just jump in? And I'll mention how we met, that one of my favorite podcast guests, Joe DeSena, wrote us both and said, you guys have to talk. You guys are both very interested in similar things your podcast, you've had a couple of guests who, whom I've had, Seth Godin and Margaret Klein-Solomon. Uh, Bill McKibben wrote about your book and he's a friend of mine. I would love to talk to you about any of these things. We're going to get to environment at some point.
1: <laughs> well, that is quite an intro. Yes. I, I always get quite blown away when uh, I hear this. I think it's just because I'm so old, you know, <laughs> you clock up a few you know hobbies and uh, idiosyncrasies uh, over the years.
0: I know the feeling, you know, I noticed recently when I sit down, I turned 50 in July and I'm starting to sit like an old person, like the sitting down um, process. I'm like, oh man, I didn't expect that. But
1: yeah, getting out of bed, sore hips. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm, I'm 47, so I'm not too far behind you.
0: And I'm going to start with I Quit Sugar because uh, food was my intro to acting on sustainability, to actually doing something as opposed to just knowing about it. And I think I Quit Sugar wasn't your take on it, but I bet it's related
1: Yes. Yeah, definitely. I don't know which came first, to be honest, I, I suppose my interest in sustainability came first. It's been the backdrop to most of my existence. I grew up on a subsistence living farm where we had goats for milk and meat. We had you know, vegetables and so on. It was a drought. So everything was very, very frugal and mum and dad simply had no money. So it was sort of necessity that got us to be very frugal in the way that we lived. But it became a way of life for myself and my five brothers and sisters, and we all live this way, you know. Now, so you mentioned in in the introduction, you know, I was the editor of Cosmo. I've I worked for all these different multimedia companies, and you know, I've I've maintained this philosophy. So when I arrived at the I quick Sugar journey, it was actually my health that saw me go on it. But at all points, it was a, a zero food waste, you know, program. I've always cooked zero food waste and all of my cookbooks worked to that kind of idea. And, you know, as, as my awareness of the environmental situation increased, I ramped up the, the level of, you know, zero food wasteness of, across my program and, and my cookbooks to the point where my most recent one, I think, is the first cookbook where at the making of it was zero food waste. So, you know, it's 348 recipes, so that's a big, big, fat book. Nothing was wasted. So, you know, where I made... Muffins, you know, in week one of shooting, everything was frozen. and That would become the crumble for something in week three, you know? So nothing was thrown out and I repurposed everything and that became part of the story. So yes, you're right. The two are interwoven and ditto health more broadly.
0: I'm hearing something that I got to call out that you're talking about recipes, you're talking about food. I hear also the mood is not of like, we have to do this. Correct. Which is the predominant mood that I hear is like, when I hear meatless Mondays, I'm hearing someone who doesn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. And am like, oh, fine, one day I got, if I have to. I don't hear that from you. Am I reading that right?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you're reading it that way because my my thing, and this is a really big turning point in my most recent book because I was really struggling. I wanted to write a book that provided a path forward through Climate in action, to be deadly honest, you know, there's just this missing link where people know the planet is suffering, yet we do nothing. And it drives us all insane. And What I realised is that we were making it an arduous task. We were hammering home these CO2 emissions, tonnage, this and that, and it was all dark and heavy and draconian. And I realised that human behaviour only changes when the new way is more charming than the status quo. And I realised, I mean, my meditation teacher said to me partway through the writing of, of that most recent book this one wild and precious life but Sarah you actually love living the way that you live like for you it's a joy and it's something that you need to show us you need to show us why this is joyful so every aspect of my frugality my minimalism the way that I live I don't see it as arduous I see it as this light sort of flow that is in in congruence with life you know what I mean when you when you just sort of eat the your broccoli stems when you don't peel your kiwi fruit and you throw it all into your smoothie and you don't make juices because that's a waste of beautiful Resources, i.e., fiber, you start to just get into this flow. You produce less rubbish, less trips to the garbage. You know, when you ride a bike, for instance, you know exactly how long it's going to take you because you don't have to be held up in traffic. Um, You don't have to try to look for a park and you get to see things and you do exercise at the same time and you suddenly have more time in the day. It's a real flow that I live by. And that's what I try to, I guess, enthuse people with is that this is a fun way to live.
0: Yeah, it's like it's almost impossible to put into words. Like I've you you talked about joy and for me it just flows off the tongue. Joy, fun, community, connection, meaning, purpose. This is the result of what everyone else is like, yeah, we know you have to say that, but really you don't like this. I'm like I can't get it across like how much one thing leads to the next.
1: I know. Well, everybody's trying to do it separately. It's like not realising that when you have, uh, say, an inflammation disease, plus you have stomach aches, plus you have brain fog, plus you've put on weight, you don't realise that the solution's the same thing. You don't have to go to a different doctor for each bit. It's actually far simpler. It's the same fix for all of it, including you can throw anxiety in there, you can throw a bunch of things. It's the same with living this way. So many people are going to the gym. To get fit. Then they're um, trying to do this, this, and that to reduce their their garbage um, each week. Then they're trying to, you know, eat better. You know, eat more fiber. They go and add fiber to their to their shakes each morning. And it's like, just do it all in one hit. You know, ride a bike. Don't peel things. Buy organic where you can, so that you don't have to peel things and you can and you can eat every bit of it without worrying about you know the skin being having insecticides on it. Like there are so many you just kind of cut straight to it so i think this is the thing that we need you know people like you and i need to try to share with everyone is that you know you save that much time and effort and palaver from having to go and seek specialty help on all of these things it's the one fix you know and it's so so much simpler
0: and joyful and mm. it's once you as you said like you start doing it and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and how, how many people call you extreme? Is it, do you get that a lot?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I'm sort of, I think, because I've been able to explain it in these terms, I think the joyful message has been able to rub off slowly, slowly. I don't think anybody sees me as a melancholy, negative, you know, downer of a person. And so, but yes, absolutely. I would be regarded in my neighborhood as something of a novelty, you know, yeah. people sort of marvel at the way I live and they and and I think you'd probably understand this many of many of you listening to, to the two of us who might be living this way is that people go oh isn't it great that you live that way or aren't you lucky to live this way and it's sort of this in some ways I feel like I'm put on this separate special little pedestal and I'm like no 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 don't don't do that. It doesn't need to be done. Just start living this way as well. It's almost like I'm I'm their guilty conscience ticked off. Oh, I've got Sarah. Sarah does these extreme sort of bizarre, wacky things. Oh, Sarah, you know, she's sort of strange. And it's quite, I think people are fascinated by it they're attracted to it definitely because it does seem to be fun and light and sensible and really morally the right way to live if I'm to be honest but they don't really think that they should be doing it themselves nor do they want to they don't know how to start and so that's what keeps the distance you know so yes the extreme thing comes up because that's how they are able to maybe justify the fact that they're not doing the same or even you know, their own way themselves. And that sounds a bit harsh, but I think that's psychologically what does go on.
0: I suspect you're saying that what when you were there would have helped you to hear someone say to yes. pop you out of it.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. That is true. I probably didn't have the same problem, although no, I have. I mean I've it's it's a gradual thing. And the more you see, you can't unsee. So you know, I could never buy a single use takeaway coffee cup. You know, in fact, I don't think I really have in my lifetime, to be honest. I think maybe I've had it bought for me when I did some work in television and stuff like that. But once you know where it ends up, once you know the lid takes 400 years to break down and that all of that plastic ends up in our guts, you know, a credit card size piece of plastic we ingest each week, all of that kind of thing. How can you go and buy a takeaway coffee cup ever again? you know? So it, it, it accumulates, it gradually builds and builds. And I haven't found like, I haven't found it hard because you do a bit, you do more. And I've always said, you know, Joshua, that action begets action and care begets care. And your care capacity grows. And as you're in that caring space, that's when some true life meaning comes into being. And it's it's not a task any longer. It's something that you just feel, well, there's no other way of living. And it's a bit of a, you know, many of the listeners would know the word Dharma. Dharma is essentially where you're living a life where your life purpose, your sense of what is right plus what you are currently doing as a, in so far as a, an occupation, a job, all come together in, in a sort of a, a nice, healthy, coalesced mix. And I think you're in your dharma when you start to live this way. This is how we're meant to live. We're meant to live in congruence with nature, with the flow and the mechanisms, the biology, the patternings, the fractals of nature.
0: Yeah, I think before maybe a couple generations ago, nature was a given. You could not live without trees being nearby. One of the things I I suspect that a lot of listeners, if they look around wherever they are right now, there's a decent chance that a lot of them, there's nothing living within view, no plants, no animals. And I've come to think of, you know, I think people get that you don't want to have too much mind at the expense of body, too much body at the expense of mind. You have a nice balance and maybe throw in spirit or God as another. But I think nature is just as important as these. It's just, we never had to worry about it. Just like you don't have to worry about oxygen when you're above water, but when you're below water, it suddenly becomes very, very important.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't realize what you need until it's suddenly gone. And look, the, to, to what you're saying there, I think it's a really important piece. Nature is also our greatest teacher. And we're at a time in history where we are so confused as to what the right path might be, because we are in a space where we are contained within these hyperobjects. Hyperobjects are these concepts that are so big and unwielding. We are in the middle of it, and so it's so hard to get an objective view. So the climate crisis is obviously one, so is the global pandemic. I mean, how can you stand back and go, right, this is what we all need to be doing when we're in it? We're complicit and we're suffering. We're both victim and perpetrator. So it's very, very hard. Our brains are really struggling. And I have come to feel, and this is sort of the central thesis of my book, is that... Nature can actually remind us of how simple it is. Nature is our teacher. When we have the the wonderful kind of intelligence of nature and the way that tides come in and they take the sand to the right point and then take things back out again and you have the right amount of sunlight and whatever to grow a garden, you see all these patterns and that reminds us that we've we've got to actually join that flow and when we join that flow, things fall into place so it's it's not only sort of makes us feel good and there's now tens of thousands of studies that have shown what happens when we are removed from nature and the violence in, in suburbs goes up dramatically when there are no parks happiness levels decrease as well and when as soon as you start to plant trees it reverses but it is also I think, really crucial to recognise that at this time in history, we need to return to nature almost to get our instruction manual for what to do next. You know, we need to return, we need to do a fair bit of returning rather than reinvention at the moment. That's what I feel. And again, you know, some of you listening might feel a certain amount of relief that it might just be that simple.
0: I suspect if I ask you for an example of your being in that flow, being in in that letting nature teach you, I suspect that you could pick just any moment, and however trivial it may have been, it's going to be meaningful. Can you share an example of a time when you when you were learning from nature? Maybe in the past day yeah. or two, or a big one in the past.
1: Okay, well, yes, as you say, pretty much every single decision I make is is guided by nature, whether it's the weather, what you know, the seasons, whatever. But I would say that probably a really significant one, was when I was writing my book and I was stuck. And like I said, I I was really struggling to find the hopeful path forward. And that's what my pitch to my publishers promised. I was going to find a hopeful path forward for humanity through all this fragmentation and complexity. And the deadline was getting closer and closer. Here in Australia, we've had the bushfires, the devastating bushfires that wiped out 20% of our forests and also killed over 1 billion animals and I was just I I, I was watching climate denialism increase I didn't know what to do so I did what I always do and I'd always know intuitively that this worked I got on a train and I went down to a a national park about an hour away from my home and I just got off the train and I just ran in the bush you know I do this sort of uh, hike scramble slash run sort of thing and I just knew that that's what I needed to do and I just moved through nature scrambled over rocks sort of walked through rivers and the smells and the sounds they just start to do their job and like I mentioned you know the compounds from trees have an incredible effect on serotonin levels you know, the fractals I mentioned before, you see patterns that produce a congruence in our eyes, which are also made up of fractals, and we get a sense of belonging. We know the science of awe, you know, open ceilings and that vast expanses can can encourage a certain type of thinking that is kind of mystical and also sort of comforting but I suppose what happened for me that time I was lying on a rock and just having a break and I looked up and I saw a murmuration of birds you know sort of a flock of birds that were doing that wonderful movement you know where they suddenly dart this way and that way
0: yeah there's like one of them in the front and they all kind of moving around and it's it's just yeah yeah
1: and I, I had, I remembered reading not so long ago that, um, scientists have always struggled to find what it is that actually, there's no one bird that suddenly goes, Hey guys, let's turn, re- you know, left suddenly now, you know, there seems to be just this intuitive sense of, just darting left suddenly uh, or right and up and down. And it's just beautiful to watch. So I was watching that up in the sky. And I remember that the naturalists in the 19th century couldn't come up with a word or a phenomenon or a theory. It It just seemed to be beyond the scope of science at the time. And they came up with a word and they called it group soul. And I just went, wow, that's right. That's that beautiful word. And group soul is something where the collective intuitively knows something. And I just had this sense that, wow, you know, that is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to draw on group soul. And group soul is felt when we have the the unified experience of nature. And um, that was a very big turning point for me. I sort of picked myself up, ran back to this train station, got home and started to rewrite my book through this lens of both group soul and simply coming back to nature, back to the natural world and the patterns and the, the wonderful compounds and benefits it offers, but also to our own nature our true selves, and as you know from, from my book, so much of our pain right now is, is really comes down to a disconnection, not just from each other but from ourselves and also from our sense of belonging on this planet. There's a lot of discussion about the homesickness we feel from nature because we are so far removed from it. So, yeah, that was, that was probably it. But really, to be honest, every time I got stuck, and, and to this day, every time I get stuck in my writing or in a big project, I just go and walk it out. I walk it out for three or four hours and this is really, I find people really resonate with this. Walking goes at the same pace as discerning thought. So we emerged as upright uh, as an upright species from the, the primordial soup, so to speak, and with these oversized brains that could start to piece out things in a collective way of being able to communicate in sophisticated ways, et cetera, of having discerning thinking that we can reflect on and then share with, you know, the rest of our species. So they emerged at the same time in the sort of the prefrontal cortex. And so, yes, walking putting one foot in front of the other um, enables us to have much more discerning thoughts. And really, I think what we are suffering at the moment is a crisis of a lack of discerning thought. We are fragmented, we are distracted, we're toggling between activities all day, every day. And uh, I think that's something that you know, a a legacy of scientists, writers, poets, world leaders have drawn on is this idea of walking to think out something deep and important. And I draw on that all the time. So that's a long answer to your question, but I think it's an important one for people to realise just how it can work. And it works instantly. You only need to be walking in nature for 20 minutes to get the benefits.
0: It's incredibly simple and obvious. I, I can't imagine anyone If the CEO of Exxon heard what you just said, it would probably be like, yeah, it's great to take walks in the woods. And I don't. No one one on their deathbed looks back and says, I took too many walks in the woods.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I can tell you that a lot of people prolonged their trajectory or their path to their deathbed by walking. And, you know, I mean, you, you use the example of Exxon, but there's, I know that Mark Zuckerberg, I know that Bill Gates all use walking in nature as a way of being able to think. You know, Nietzsche, Vincent van Gogh, I'm just trying to think. Winston Churchill. They were all incredible thinkers, incredible leaders, incredible contributors to to humanity. And they used walking as a way of piecing out their thinking.
0: Yeah, the the simplicity. And I mean, you said walking. Oh, as you were saying that, I was thinking how I was in your book. You talked about scrolling, and I was thinking about. And here in Greenwich Village in New York, there's a. Sometimes you'll see a T-shirt that says uh, "Less Mark Jacobs, More Jane Jacobs." And Mark yeah, Jacobs right. is like the stylish guy, style guy, and Jane mm-hmm. Jacobs is, is like the antithesis to Robert Moses.
1: And I was yes. thinking of
0: strolling, not scrolling.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have a hashtag on a lot of my um, Instagram posts that says, hike, don't shop. And you literally can't shop while you're hiking. You are protected from the bombardment of billboards and messages that tell you not enough unless you buy more. A lot of people say to me, Oh, what's the secret to your minimalism? I'm like, hike. Because when you're hiking, you don't shop. And when you don't shop, you just don't even have to go through this process, you know? So yeah, I think, yeah, we we should, we should get a line of t-shirts, virtual t-shirts, slogans, slogans on memes. Let's leave it to that. That's a sustainable option.
0: We'll just say it and it'll it'll get out there. Yeah. I'm curious, how was your conversation with Joe? Like, I presume you're on his podcast or?
1: Yes. Yes, I was. It was a great chat. It was really emotional. I mean, it's really funny. I, I get invited to kind of join podcasts around the world and I think, you know, the last 12 months has seen me to say yes where I can see it's a like-minded person Previously I found them, you know, I, I would sort of vet them a little just to make sure I was making use of my time, you know, in the best way. But, yeah, I mean, I didn't have any background on him. But you can just tell, don't you think, these days. I almost can, You can smell through the internet a person's authenticity. But it was a very kind, generous, soulful discussion. And how lucky are we to do this as a living is to talk um, for an hour about stuff that matters to us in a way that I even struggle sometimes to have these conversations with my friends. We don't allow this space. So, yes, my discussion with Joe was, yeah, was like many I've been having around the world where it's enabled me to feel more connected than I've ever felt in my life during a time when connection is meant to have got suddenly very difficult.
0: Part of what you're saying makes me feel like, you know, on my side too, I feel like there's a simplicity, there's all these simple things. That you know, I've some trees are on me, but every day I go out and I pick up garbage. I pick up other people's litter. My little rule for myself is, if it's someone else's, pick it up anyway. Yes. And it's it's funny because it's certainly not walking through trees. A lot of people would say it's a dirty thing to do because I'm getting you know putting my hands on the ground, which is not exactly I wouldn't say dirty, but in any case, it goes to the clean part of my brain because I'm cleaning up the world. Mm-hmm. And this is of course not reducing the amount of waste; it's just moving it from one place to another. Hopefully, I mean hopefully a, a landfill is preferable to the ocean and it connects you with something, I have to say, dark about people and society that this stuff is increasing and increasing and increasing. On the other hand, it's active and it's doing something. Occasionally people will say, thank you or offer me, one guy offered me some candy.
1: I think, I, think we're, I mean, there's been quite a number of studies that have been done about how our spirit, the human spirit, lights up when we see acts of generosity and kindness or or, or just simple moral goodness the right thing you know doing the right thing and so all right i agree with you picking up trash is is probably shifting things around a bit but any act of care any act of effort i think lights us up particularly at the moment and you'd know that i covered this in my book a little is that we have slipped into a space of what i call asedia, which is a an ancient greek term that translates as a listless slothfulness and we have become overwhelmed by stuff too much information too much scrolling and so we tend to cope when we're inundated overwhelmed etc by shutting down we go into freeze mode and it's a way of coping and it's not a great place to be in at the moment when, when really the planet is calling out to us to not save the planet, but, of course, to save ourselves. And this is the thing that we often forget, right? You know, in the climate movement, we often talk about saving the koalas, um, saving the Amazon, saving the forest. What are we talking about? The planet will be fine. The planet will correct That might mean sending humans off its surface so that it can recorrect and come back into balance. That's what nature does, it rebalances. And if we don't join that balance, then it'll probably kick us off. And that's kind of, you know, maybe for instance, with a pandemic, you know, that doesn't stop and and defies um, vaccination efforts. I don't know. But, you know, I think that we often go into a space where we are asleep. We go into this deep state of acedia, like I mentioned, and we can't afford to be doing that right now. And so we do need to be doing the extra work, whatever it might be. And, you know, just as care begets care, action begets action, I think engagement in life begets engagement in life. And it's, you know, you'd all know the, the idea, the metaphor of the the pot of um, water on a stove and you've got a couple of frogs in there and it's gradually warming. You know, and of course the frogs are going, This is nice in here, you know, this is um quite comfortable. And look, I've got a sneaking suspicion this is not going to end well, but I can't be bothered to jump out. And, you know, the acidia kind of slips in. And by the time you realize that you're in, you know, a really mortal danger, it's too late. You've you can no longer get out of the water because you're so exhausted and and um you know, flustered, so to speak. And that's where we are faced. That's where we're faced. I mean, even the metaphor of the heating up of the planet, the heating up of our environment, our pond, is incredibly accurate. So I I sort of think that small acts of kindness, goodness, environmental care can never be a waste of time. And psychologically as well, a big part of our severe comes from the fact that we feel like nothing we're going to do is going to make any difference. The best cure for that, according to psychologists and many studies around the world, is actually just even doing something small. So that will actually kick you out of that kind of cognitive state of despair really effectively and on onwards you go you keep moving forward with more and more action so I think you've probably got the same approach to me is what's the fix here it is to engage and act and live the life that we feel everyone needs to be living to save this one wild and precious life do it now make it look charming and it becomes the infectious way of being we are programmed to want to follow the people that make life look charming and also are doing the right thing so yes if i can use that as a rally call is to be the to be the example that everybody's wanting to see right now and to create that that infectious charge forward
0: yeah would you you described it alternately at first like we've got to work but also i think that when you said work in that context i think it was work in the sense of a call. For you, for me, it's a calling. It's not work in the sense of drudgery. It's work in the sense of, of a calling, yeah. an avocation, that it gives back much more than you put in.
1: Yeah, and look, not everybody's in a position like we are to be doing work that's directly engaged in climate activation. You know, but like I say in my book, I quote Pima Chodra the wonderful American Buddhist nun. She has a phrase and it's, start where you are. And wherever you are, if you're a a nurse doing night shift, if you're a student who's just broken up with their boyfriend and feeling incredible despair, whatever it might be, if you're a father, a single dad with limited resources but really wants their kids to grow up with some awareness, that's where you start. That's where you're going to have the greatest impact. That's where your dharma comes into play. It doesn't have to be your job as in you don't have to change jobs to work directly in this area. And I use the example in the book of my friend Lucy, who's a mum up the road with two, you know, be honest nightmare kids they're particularly rowdy um boys but anyway she she was like it was during the time of the school climate protests which were global uh september 2019 and i was writing my book and she said sarah what can i do look the kids and the parents at my school they're not going to the strike because it's like too hard she said maybe i should book a minibus and so she did that. She put it up on one of those event scheduling services where you know you can collect the fee and just with the press of a button. Anyway, within half an hour or so, she filled up this minibus. She then upgraded to a massive coach, and then she ended up booking two coaches. She filled those coaches and got something like 150 students and and parents to the rally who would not normally have gone. Now, I shared that on Instagram that story sort of 24 hours before the the rally and a whole bunch of other parents did exactly the same thing. So her simple action, starting where she was, a frustrated mum with limited resources, actually probably got, I don't know, 500 people to that rally. Now that is creating change. So doing the work doesn't require, I don't know, suddenly getting your environmental certificate and having all the conditions perfectly lined up. It's starting where you are right now And then you just keep on going and going. And one thing that I sort of like to remind people is that we are at our happiest when we are engaged in work. We are not at our happiest when we're sitting back, ascetic, with our mobile phones, scrolling through Twitter, observing other people's lives, flicking through Netflix, ordering in takeout where we don't even engage with the people that we're buying the food from. We are on, at our unhappiest when we're living that way. We're at our happiest when we're, our sleeves are rolled up and we're doing the work. We have a culture, and it's been in the case for the last 30 years, where we have this sort of dialogue around the idea that discomfort is a bad thing and that it should be eradicated at all costs. And if it feels like hard work, pull out. Now that's not being human. Being human is is actually knowing that, you know, life, that all the good stuff in life happens when, you know, you've gone through a little bit of hardship and and there's and you build up resilience to certain things so that you can endure some of the wonderful aspects of life. And you know, we, we used to have ceremonies, you know, initiation ceremonies and rites of passage ceremonies, which were all about getting people okay with the discomfort of being an adult. In a human life, a good, wonderfully meaningful human life, and I think that that's a big stumbling point for some people. That if it feels like hard work, then we shouldn't be doing it. And I argue the opposite. We are at our happiest when we're when we've got our sleeves rolled up doing the hard work.
0: Man, to me, this I hear it. I'm thinking, oh, if only I'd heard this like ten years earlier, twenty years earlier. And then I'm trying to think of how does this sound to someone who thinks that comfort is great and discomfort is a problem. Does it resonate? I guess it's going to be, everyone's going to be unique and different people are going to react in different ways. I suppose there are going to be people who just hear that and think, well, oh, I don't want that. <laughs> I like comfort. I deserved it. I earned it. Yeah,
1: Well, I'll, 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 well, for that person... Yeah, that's right. We've got this whole, I deserved it. It's that individualistic culture, which is particular to the US, but in Australia we, we're living that way as well now. That culture is transferred down under, absolutely, to a lot of Western nations where that individualistic need to look after ourselves and not go through any pain for the sake of a more collective notion is ingrained now but i use the example in my book and lots of people who are, who make a similar point use this example that in world war ii during the london blitz when life was really uncomfortable you didn't know if you'd be hit by a bomb walking to you know walking out to get sort of you know uh, your ration of of bread or or, or whatever, and however, and look with Winston Churchill at the time, the leader, he was very aware of it, and he set up all these mental institutions on the outskirts of London to almost, you know, to be able to bear the burden of what the world was facing. And what happened was that, in fact, admissions to mental institutions dropped to virtually zero during this time. Ditto suicide rates, and. Post-war, the studies bore out that the Brits during the London Blitz were the happiest they've ever been, and also the healthiest, and that's to do with rationing. Rationing works so well for a society's health, just as an FYI, and in fact, it's one of the most effective tools for getting a society healthy. But isn't it interesting that going through the hardship of the Blitz, you know joining each other in bunkers, underground, you know, heating sirens, etc, was actually brought together a real sense of belonging and camaraderie and a sense of purpose, which provided incredible happiness. So it was from discomfort that the greatest happiness for the Brits ever you know, came about. So I use that example, and I think it can sometimes see a few pennies drop.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of, luckily for me, at the beginning of the pandemic, I heard on a podcast, it was a psychology happiness expert person, and I think it was on a Sam Harris podcast, mm-hmm. and they were talking about how, there's all this advice to, for self-care and make sure you take care of yourself. And they said, it really comes from serving others. That's yes. They said, we're notoriously bad at, we think that we'll get a massage and then we feel great. And after the massage, we're like, well, uh, that was kind of interesting, I guess. And then we, we think about going and volunteering and we think, oh man, oh, God, this is going to be a pain. And then we walk away like, man, I, I got to do that more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's, we're funny, aren't we humans? And it comes about from this tension that we have to live in to survive in an optimal way, and that is we have selfish tendencies. You know, we we look after ourselves and our immediate family and we need that to survive, but then we also need to attend to the collective because unlike other species that have horns and fangs and poisons or whatever, we are pretty defenceless. We are probably one of the weakest species on the planet. If you go by of the physicality side of things, what we possess, though, is an ability to come together as a collective and often through myth and story and you know morality to ensure that we look after our weakest link. So that kind of coming together as a collective, unifying as, as a tribe has, has seen us rise to the top of the food chain. So we need both and when we exist in a healthy tension between the two, humanity does wonderfully. We have these wonderful upheavals of creative output and, you know, moral reckoning and, and so on. When we swing too far towards individualism, we come unstuck. We simply can't survive if we walk around like a bunch of uh, individual units we need the collective. And so we are programmed at an evolutionary level to desire it and find happiness from it and fulfillment. It's not a coincidence, not that we actually really necessarily just love other people all the time. We are programmed to want to love other people and to be part of a collective and work together.
0: Yeah, In my mind, I'm going back to food and and how I'd love to break bread together sometimes.
1: Well, that's what food's always done. Yeah, food has always been a symbol around which we do come together. It's a draw card. And this is the wonderful thing about humanity. We have created symbols, rituals and what I call moral umpires, you know, on the football field of life that ensure we keep coming together as a collective, that we don't forget that urge and and Forget that source of joy. And, you know, spirituality has provided that, you know, churches and congregations, you know, even, you know, even just simple things like observing the Sabbath, which of course we don't do anymore. But when we did, even in non-religious, you know, situations, you know, just simply the shops were shut when I was growing up on a Sunday and half of Saturday. And that was so that we ensured we had time to spend with friends and family, you know, going on a picnic and not shopping. So we've always had these mechanisms in place as well as governments you know governments were put in place to ensure that we had equal access to education for all and health because we need to look after our weakest links and so we had those in place so that we as individuals don't have to worry about it on a daily basis but again the last 30 years the rise of neoliberalism has seen us eradicate a lot of those things they're seen as sort of a a detri- it's detrimental to humanity to have these, these you know, interfering bodies. Um, it's like the market system should sol- solve it all. Well, it doesn't, does it? Look what it's done to the planet. We're consuming in Australia and the US, five the equivalent of five planet Earths, you know, because we or the moral umpires that ensured that we didn't get too greedy have been wiped off the field. And so that is a big part of our problem is that we don't have those mechanisms in place. And and what I call for is is re-establishing those. And I think the COVID pandemic saw us actually gravitate towards that quite naturally to groups, to Zoom hangouts, to book clubs, all of those kind of community things, you know, because when we're in a crisis, we will turn to the collective.
0: If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe it in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodekcom slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. You're making me think of uh, a passage in my book that I'm working on now of, and why Jane Jacobs was on my mind and talking about neoliberalism. That So you know about Robert Moses in New York and I'm not sure how much you know, but he was- I'm
1: not too familiar. I know the name and I, I, I've lost the context, I'm afraid. Yeah. Tell me.
0: He's a subject of this book, The Power Broker, which it's like this thick, thick book, many, many words. And I was just going to browse it just for a second. And it's so incredibly well written that I had to read all like 1500 pages of small type, big page. There's one like every word it could. So it presents Robert Moses as as this guy who came in as a, it was a corrupt system in, in New York state, in New York city, the government, and he reformed it. And he came as parks commissioner and built a lot of parks. This is, in the twenties and thirties. And at the time, not many people had cars and there was, I don't think anyone had could have imagined heating up the globe or that, you know, drilling for the oil would displace people from their land and things like that. And not many people had cars. So he built roads to make it more convenient for cars to get around and, and that would improve business and so forth. And what he didn't realize for, I think possibly until he died because he was driven everywhere and he was sheltered from having to deal with traffic was that, you know, he'd build a road and then it would then it would fill up, and they'd say, "Oh, I guess there's more demand than we thought." So they'd build another road, and it took not that long before people on the streets realized roads increase demand; they don't fill, the, they don't meet the demand. And then, yes,
1: that's absolutely right. Yeah,
0: it took decades for people to figure that out. He never figured it out. He kept pushing, 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 building more and more roads. My neighborhood would have been almost a highway. It would have gone through Soho and just south of Greenwich Village, where I live. So. I tell the story about Robert Moses at the end. I say, you know, Elon Musk is Robert Moses today and most mm-hmm. of the Silicon Valley approach, but maybe it's more of like since Milton Friedman and, and, and Rand and that, that they haven't picked up that they're, it's this effect of where the, you think there's a cure, but the cure actually increases the problem. Yes. And then you need more cure. Yes. I call it an arch problem because see, here we are and I'm in New York and there's a siren going by. And I'm like, should I, edit it out. And I'm thinking, let's leave it in just for the poignancy of it.
1: No, no, it's pertinent. Yep. (laughs) And
0: so an arch problem is if you, an arch, you know, structural arch, if you put a bunch of stones into an arch shape, you need pressure on it from above for it to be stable.
1: Yes.
0: And if you think that if it looks unstable and you think, well, maybe I'll support it from below a bit, you actually make it less stable. In which case, if you think the problem is you need more support, then you have to support it more. And then eventually you support it, it becomes less stable, you support more, it becomes less stable. And then you end up having to do the whole thing yourself. And the arch, you've lost the arch. And a problem where the supposed cure increases the problem, that's what we're. That's- yeah,
1: well, it's a, it's, an, it's a huge cognitive dissonance, isn't it? As well, where we can't see that that's what we're doing. We can't pull back from the cycle to see that. It's the band-aiding effect as well. Quite often the band-aiding, the covering up of the actual issue, not only perpetuates the issue, but is actually the cause of it in the first place. It's a a horrible cognitive blockage that humans can often have. And it requires, unfortunately, a fair bit of nuance and nuanced discussion and, and time and discerning thought to actually work through it because as humans we prefer to go to the easy option we prefer to go to the straightforward sort of thing that seems to make sense it's a little bit like you know when we're dealing with cholesterol we talk about it as though it's the fats that we're eating that are the problem well it's actually not it's the sugars that actually cause the crystallization if we don't eat sugar then that 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 fixes it and so you know a lot of Cholesterol products are high in sugar, not realizing that actually that's, you know, because they've taken the fat out, you know, the low fat products, you pump sugar in to make up for the loss of uh, fullness of mouth, texture, and flavor. And you're going back to the original problem. It's insanity, and it does take nuance to discuss it so that humans can start to understand what we need to do to ultimately fix the problem. But we live in a culture where nuance is disregarded, we don't have the time for it and um I talk about this in the book once again, I keep saying that, don't I? but we have lost the ability to long read or to read complexities because of the way that we engage with you know social media and our phones and 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 so this uh constant toggling and so we we actually have lost the skill to have these kinds of discussions and get to the actual truth to realize what we 've got to do with our arches you know
0: oh man it's like. And once you make the switch, it's clear. And then that's where what we were talking about earlier is you make the switch, you start reflecting, you start strolling, not scrolling. Let me say that a lot now. I'm gonna cut at you. And mm-hmm. and then you do it more and more. And it becomes clear the whole system. It's I don't know about you, but maybe this is too heavy a word, but like it's disgust that I, I look at that and I'm there's no effort on my part not to fly. It's it's Mm. there's no effort on my part not to get takeout. It's just not appetizing. It's the opposite of what I want. It's it. I know that it's, I was about to say, I know that it may be pleasing to my tongue, but it's all that salt, sugar, fat. It's not, it's not pleasing to my tongue. Then when it's all added in like that, whereas I don't know about you, but apple, it hit me most with apples because I've always thought of, I love fruit of all sorts, but I sort of apples is like the boring fruit. It's not boring. It's just relative to mangoes and lychees and stuff like the exciting ones. It always seemed boring. And and I've it's been a long time since the last time I was bored by an apple because the they're so sweet. I can't believe how sweet they are. And they've a tiny yes. fraction of the sugar that ice cream does. Is there enough money in the world for me to have a spoon of Ben and Jerry's? I suppose for enough money I might. I, I, I don't. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. I, I think. And yet. This thing has much less sugar, tastes much more sweet, and there's much more nuance and complexity. And Mm. the way out is work, but it's really, what was that work? Eating fresh fruits and vegetables, meeting the vendors at the farmer's market, going to visit the farm, spending time with fewer people, but closer. And okay, so I'm not going to see as many people, but you know what? At 7.8 billion, I couldn't meet them all anyway. Yeah. And yeah, I'm not going to see, I will probably never see Machu Picchu. I might sail down there. And near me, I'm also, I'm not going to be able to exhaust the stuff within a bike ride of where I live.
1: That's right. I, Walt Whitman has a wonderful line and I'm probably slightly misquoting it, but it's along the lines of, tone your wants and needs down low enough so that you can make much of the negatives and simple, I think, sunrises and stars. And there is much to be said for toning down things going smaller, closer, simpler. And what that does is we can actually come to appreciate discomfort, the negatives, and we can appreciate what's readily available and the things that have always made us happy, which is sunrises and stars. And we have been frantically grasping outwards on our hedonistic treadmills, for more, more, more. And even though we know all the science that says that it doesn't make us happy, in fact, we go backwards in our happiness the more we think that the answer's out there as we grasp and grasp. But we keep doing it because we've, we've, for a bunch of different reasons we've lost the ability to just stop and come in close but when we start to reprogram our brains it's actually our natural state is to tone our wants and needs to sit in discomfort to understand these processes of simple tastes of apples where their flavor has has evolved over tens of thousands of years um, if not longer to to match exactly what our taste buds crave and what our bodies crave you know it's this beautiful symbiotic intelligence and um, when we go simple we reconnect with that and we don't have to we don't have to go on the hedonistic treadmill anymore because it's all here it's right here in front of us you know and COVID has enabled us to actually get a little bit of an insight into that because as I say we're not jumping on planes we're not going to Machu Picchu we're not going to far-flung places thinking that the answer's out there and honestly everyone I speak to We're all kind of relieved. It's actually dialed down our anxiety massively and we're able to do what we've always known. We read it in our spiritual self-help books, you know, to appreciate what's close to us, the small things, the simple things. We know all these phrases, right? Now we've been forced to live it and it's actually quite confronting but also really good. And this is a wonderful time in history for us to get real about how we want to live our lives. It's a perfect moment, but we've got to do it. And we're going to have to kind of face some of those truisms that we, we know to be true, like discomfort is worthwhile.
0: You said it's a perfect moment, and I laughed because it reminded me of, uh, I was going to say another in a long series of perfect moments. And it's, it's one of the things that I, I have a doorman in my building, and when I come back from a run, I almost always say to the doorman, it's a different doorman different times, yet another in a long series of perfect days to run. And so sometimes I come back and it was a sunny day with you know, cool breezes, but sometimes it's like it poured rain on me in the middle and I still come back, another in a long series of perfect days for a run.
1: Yeah. People say to me, what's your favorite hike? Because as you know, I hike around the world to tell these these stories in my book back when I could. And, um, and I lived on the road. It wasn't like I was off on these holidays. It's just how I was living out of one bag for sort of eight years. And um, I'm like, my answer is always my favourite hike is my next hike because there's never been a hike that I've regretted, just like jumping in the ocean. I've never regretted jumping in the ocean, you know, and I've never regretted a hike. There's always something beautiful and wonderful and I always feel better when I come back and it's the same with the run, right? You come to appreciate whatever it is. And in fact, if you've got to push through almost vertical or horizontal rain in a in a run, that in itself can bring about an exhilaration that you wouldn't normally have if you're sitting in front of the television absorbing somebody else's life from afar, you know?
0: Oh, you make me think about, a walk that I had, I found in Central Park in the middle of a city with something like 8 million people in a metropolitan region with something like 20. In the middle of Central Park, I found a mulberry tree with the sweetest mulberries I've ever tasted. And it's so prolific that I felt like I was standing in snow because all the mulberries underneath my feet, I'm just sliding around on them. And no one knows that it's there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I saw no sign of any, there's just mulberries everywhere on the ground. So when you're here, I'll I'll take you for a walk if it's June and I'll take you to my secret mulberry tree.
1: Wonderful. Well, what that reminds me of is, um, is something that I learned when I was researching my book, that the person who designed Central Park, Frederick Olmsted, he apparently at the time sent around a whole heap of um, brochures to poor neighbourhoods, doctor's offices in poor neighbourhoods all over New York City. And the note, and I've actually just looked it up actually, uh, was please tell your patients to go to Central Park because it will help them feel better. Literally, that's what his letter to the doctors said, and you know his belief was that going to a park will make people who've maybe living in hardship a lot of the time um, it might cure some of their illnesses. But I, you know, the simplicity of that, that yes, Central Park is a beautiful part of the world.
0: You know, I was I told you before we hit record about this process that I walked guests through, and I, I think you're living the result of it without going through it. I'm trying to think if I should go through it with you because you already done it, but are are you?
1: Let's give it a go anyway. Try it on me. (laughs) So when
0: you think about the environment, I mean, all these things that you do, can you trace back where does motivation come from? Is it, and I don't mean a lot of people start saying, well, I want to save the world or something like that looking forward or what they're doing, but I mean, what prompted it? Like often it's a specific memory or some experience and sometimes it's more than one. Like what's, Mm -hmm. what's worth saving? What is it? What does nature mean to you?
1: It, allows me to tap into the wildness within me. I need to feel that absolute tear-pricking, joyful expansiveness and oneness. I suppose it would be almost a spiritual yearning to be in my truth. And that sounds a bit woo-woo, I suppose, but I'm really trying to answer it as honestly as possible. It's the wildness that sees me do what I do. I don't want to be held down by faulty thinking, restrictive thinking, behavior that is not of service to, to life. I just want to be in connection with, with the life force because it's it's a vibrancy. And when I'm in connection with it, I everything feels right. Everything feels possible. And I've got all the energy in the world to fight for this one wild and precious life.
0: Can you give me a specific instance? I'm sure there are many, but when you felt this way or what prompted it
1: I think i've always just known i, I have terrible anxiety i have bipolar and obsessive compulsive disorder and i've had many brushes with suicide over the years and as a teenager living out of home not sleeping stressed financially struggling i had a note pinned to the back of the door in the sort of the group house i shared with these people who were much older than me and it just said climate tree and i would run off into the bushland a couple of blocks from where I lived and I would go and climb a tree. I was, you know, 17 or 18. And the wildness of it, the connecting with the tree, but also the inappropriateness, if you know what I mean, like of a grown woman sitting up a tree instead of suburbia. And I suppose I've just always intuitively known that that's my fix. It's what gets me Rebalanced again. It gets. It puts everything in perspective. I have a phrase in in the book as well about going to your edge, and I often have to go to my edge, my physical edge, to be able to feel fully alive and vibrant. I don't see the point, Joshua, of living a life treading along, believing that we're meant to go shopping, that we're meant to work from seven thirty in the morning to eight o'clock at night for someone we've never met to get a bunch of digits, digital, you know, digits in our bank of balance um, that apparently means something. And then to just sit on this treadmill until I'm 83 and my hips are too creaky to go and, I don't know, play bowls or whatever it is. I don't want that. I know that, that I've been gifted something so wonderfully important I want to own it. I want to live it as fully. I don't know how long it's going to last. And with the climate crisis, I'm particularly aware. I don't know how long we have on this planet. So, if anything, the climate crisis has actually made me even more appreciative of my life and my desire for vibrancy. So, that physicality of going into nature reminds me of all of that, gets me in sync with it, puts me back on that path, sets my moral compass once again. This
0: wildness, this vibrancy, the setting the moral compass. And much more than that, I, I I won't be able to put it into words the way you d- described it. Given those those feelings and what it means to you, I invite you, at your option, to think of something you can do that you're not already doing, to act on that. And before you say anything, I, I have to clarify something that almost everybody hears something I didn't say, which I didn't say. What's the most important thing you could do, or what's the thing that will have the biggest effect? This is something for you. it may have some effect on the environment. And it almost certainly will, but it's really to Bring, bring about more of that or to act on that, something you're not already doing, something that is not telling others what to do, but you do yourself and something that does have a physical component, not just reading or watching videos.
1: Mm. Oh gosh, I'm going to sound like I'm bragging, but I've certainly tried to work through things in my life that you know, sort of layer upon layer, you know, I open one door and then I realise there's more work to be done um, and I enjoy that process. But I suppose a missing piece in all of this for me is, you know, really living out some of the advice that I've just been given earlier about simplifying and bringing myself back to what really matters. And while I don't chase the dollar and I give a lot of my income away, I do chase success and having a stamp, so to speak, on the planet. And I haven't really found the very refined point where I'm being of radical service and doing the best I can. But equally, I'm living a life fully myself. I can often sort of start to head off into that stressed, frantic space, you know, in my pursuit of I suppose, success. So I'm constantly trying to modulate that and uh, meditation out in nature. So just I choose to pay an outrageous amount of rent to live near the beach and it's predominantly so I can just go and be in nature when I can. And um, so, yes, meditation and coming back to myself more regularly is probably the missing piece that I need to do more often.
0: I wonder if you could think of something to do that if you did it for, it doesn't have to be like a permanent change, but that if, if you came back on a second time, if your game to share how that experience went, if you tried it out in some way. I mean, usually what I say now is to is to make it a smart goal, meaning specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time bound.
1: Mm, okay. Well, I like this challenge. Why don't I make it then that I have a practice every day where before I start hurtling into emails, I ask the question, that comes from James Hollis, a wonderful Jungian uh, psychotherapist based in Washington, D.C., where he says, does it enlarge, as in does any particular decision, enlarge or diminish life? And uh, I commit to making a practice of that each day, asking that of the work that I have ahead before I start l- lunging into it, does it enlarge or diminish life?
0: If you're willing to share how it went, about how long do you think it would take before we could have a second conversation and share how it went?
1: Does a month sound about right? If it does to you? I think it generally takes, yeah, I think it takes, actually intuitively I'm thinking six weeks to change a habit so, and to really enforce it. So yeah, I'm more than happy to, to come to come and meet back again in six weeks and see how I go.
0: Okay, and no. If if after six weeks or even any time at all, if you feel like ah, I thought it might work, but it doesn't. No obligation to keep it going, but that's part of it. You know, it's not one of the things I don't do when I do this is to suggest to people what they do. It's I'm trying to go with intrinsic motivation, not extrinsic suggestion or coercion.
1: Yes, got it, got it. Yeah, no, I like it though. I'm activated around the invite, Joshua.
0: (laughs) And I, I can't help but share. You know, I've I asked this of hundreds of people. Invariably, the people who do the most—it's not the magnitude or how many things people do or how much people do. It's the the, that joyous feeling. They're like, "Oh yeah, I I can think of another thing." You took some people. It takes well, you know, people start where they are, Mm -hmm. and I'm not asking them to start from any other place. But some people, it's like very, very polluting people, and they're like, "Well, I'm already doing everything I can. Look, I I installed solar in my home, and I got an electric car, and what else can I do?" (laughs) And That's where they are. And I try to walk them through and and usually they come up with something and they're like, oh, you mean I could have done, oh, of course, I've been meaning to do that for a long time. But you, it's like, oh, here's something. (laughs) A lot of people think how, she's already doing everything. Like, what else could she do? And you're like, oh, you know, here's something like on the tip of my tongue.
1: Well, it's a struggle that I have with myself all the time is just constantly, when I say struggle, it's a, a wonderful struggle. David Brooks, who's the New York Times economist, he wrote a wonderful book called The Second Mountain and he said that the, the, the I think the sign of success of, of a life, you know, a successful life is based on how willing you are to engage in moral struggle with yourself. And I think that moral struggle is really important. It can feel uncomfortable, but essentially it means you're ready to answer a question at the end of a podcast, <laughs> you know, you've got, a, you've got some, something ready to go uh, in terms of where you would like to improve your life further. I suppose that's what, that, that's what it amounts to.
0: The way you say struggle almost sounds like playful.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it is. It's a wrestle, maybe a moral wrestle. It's a moral kind of rolling around in life, you know, and yeah, sort of massage, massaging out the lumpy bits and opening up the constricted bits. It's it's uh, really what else is there? What else is there to life? Like, what else are you going to do with your time? You know?
0: Yeah, the way he's talking about wrestling, I, I'm picturing like puppies playing, yes. kittens playing.
1: Resolving, resolving, learning. Learning and growing. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And a childlike uh, wonder.
1: And it's in a beautiful communion. It's a communion, you know. A, a wrestle is, is a negotiating and maneuvering around something else that can be your mirror, that can be the thing that ensures that you keep growing.
0: Well, I propose that we pick up here next time in roughly six weeks. After we stop recording, we, we can get out our calendars and schedule a second call if that works for you. Wonderful. Anything to close with? Anything I didn't think to ask or worth mentioning? Oh wait, I have to say I, I've noticed on your page that there's um, friends get a discount on your book, so I want to get people to to go to your page.
1: Yeah, no, all that is is I update where you can go and w- which outlets are currently offering a discount. So I just kind of if people go to my blog, you can you can you'll find it there if you press on the icon for this one wild and precious life, and you'll be able to sort of find where they're offering discounts at various online stores in the US. um, So you can get the best deal at the moment. And anything else to
0: close with besides that?
1: Only, um, I'm sure you put in the show notes, but sarahwilson.com, you'll find everything you need there. All the book club sheets and resources and all of my notes and materials that I use throughout the book. If you want to read further, it's all in that one spot.
0: Well, Sarah Wilson, thank you very much.
1: My absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, look forward to talking in six weeks.
0: How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodekcom slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodekcom slash donate.